Hello, this is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Our show for you today comes from a trip that T2P2 made out to Washington, D.C. in September of 2015. We did seven days of seven shows back-to-back, and our first show was with um, the director of Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, Barry Lynn. He is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Mr. Lynn earned his law degree from Georgetown University Law Center in 1978. He's also the author of several books, including his most recent, God and Government, 25 Years of Fighting for Equality, Secularism, and Freedom of Conscience. He serves as a frequent commentator for radio and television broadcasts. We talked to Barry Lynn about a lot of different religious issues that have come up in recent years, and it just so happened while we were out there, the Pope was in town. So... There wasn't a lot to talk about there. No, of course there was. Uh, We get into a lot of different topics, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Sure. uh, Our first night in D.C., we wanted to start with something easy, so we thought we would talk about church and religion, and (laughs) that would be nice and easy. And I appreciate, I don't know how much you had a hand in making it so that everybody was talking about religion and politics in the week and a half before we did this show. But I don't know what you had to pay Kim Davis in order to do that. Uh, But we appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I did call the Pope, and he's coming on Tuesday. Oh, good. Did you guys hear that? The Pope is coming. coming. Who would have known? So, okay, I, actually, uh, there's a lot of new stuff that I do want to talk about, but I almost want to backtrack and just sort of lay a ground level because I, I'm guessing there's a lot of folks in the audience who already know sort of Americans United for separation of church and state, but uh, if, if we don't or if it's sort of unclear, like, uh, what, what is sort of this base level? What is the impetus for being this organization that, that comes in and says we need to have this division? I guess sure. why? Well, you know, we've been around since 1948. Uh, I was born in 1948. I was not the founder of the organization. I was going to say, that was ambitious. it was. Um, The idea of keeping a decent distance between the institutions of government and those of religion strikes me as perfectly good for the institutions of government. They don't have to make theological judgments. You know, government gets a bad rap. It doesn't do too many things well. The last thing I would want it to try, do theology. And then uh, for the religious organizations, uh, it's good that they don't have to feel like they need to get involved in partisan politics. They don't have to be nice to the political leaders. If they want to criticize them, be prophetic, they can do that. So it works well for both religious and the religious institutions and the secular government. But they don't have to, but what if they want to? Why do you you hate their freedom? Um, it's, a, it's such a good question. I, no, it's I, one. No. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, no, they have a weird definition of what their freedom is. Lately, we've been seeing religious freedom means they can take as much money from government as possible, and then they don't have to obey any law that they don't like. And you brought up Kim Davis, and she's a perfectly sad ex- and pathetic example <laughs> of what it is to want to be an elected official as she is, $80,000 a year job in Kentucky, but she doesn't want to obey the marriage laws of the state of Kentucky. Now, unless she was living in a cave, which she might have been, she would have known that this issue of marriage equality was going to hit the United States Supreme Court one of those days, and that she might have to sign one of those marriage licenses, and she wouldn't do it, and she still won't do it. I, 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 and so there's... 
There is a level, though, of nuance, right? Somewhere at this level. I mean, yeah. obviously not so much. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Kim Davis story became sort of this such a stark example. But, uh, I mean, uh, you would meet, I think, the vast majority probably of elected officials or people who serve in office, and they would say, oh, some element of my faith or whatnot guides me in how I do my things. And so I guess I, if you're advising them or if you're, if you're taught, how do you draw that line? Like, is it just in your practice or is it in, do you have to divorce the two roles mm. entirely? I, I, I mean, that's what's challenging. It is challenging, but I think that people who are elected officials cannot turn to their holy scripture, the Bible in the vast majority of cases of elected officials, and use that as a basis for determining public policy in the United States. We have to look not to independent understandings of holy scripture. We have to look to the commonly shared values of the Constitution, which are pretty good. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, equal protection of the law, those are all values and they're good ones, and that should be enough for elected officials. Unfortunately, it's not. And in this election cycle, presidential election cycle, of course, you see, I think there are at least three, I'm thinking maybe more, candidates for the presidency in one party, I won't mention which party, <laughs> but who believe that God has already told them they will be the next president of the United States, including Dr. Ben Carson. Uh, who you just said, gave away the party. You just told us you wouldn't do Oh, that. no. I didn't know everyone here knew that much about politics. <laughs> no, he said he felt the fingers of God. He didn't say where, but he said the fingers <laughs> he said the finger, when he announced that he was running for office. You're setting our cast up. They're making this too easy. Oh, um, sorry. No, I, 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 sorry. No, I appreciate that. So we're from Minnesota. So yep. we had, we're, uh, we're just, most of us live just south of Michelle Bachman's former district yes. who spoke to God on a regular basis. Yes, and did. I mean, uh, I, I, I shouldn't, like, uh, I, I'm the son of a Lutheran minister. And mm -hmm. so I uh, completely, uh, I, I, I'm not somebody who just scoffs at religion. I do find it problematic when someone says that, God told them to do X, Y, or Z right. in particular in that, in that context. So that's sort of a hard line. But I mean, I, I do kind of want to push you on where, where before that. So if somebody says, you know, oh, my, my faith moves me to think. Or, so, for example, just this morning, uh, Secretary of State Kerry said, we're going to bring 100,000 Syrian refugees into the states by 2017. So if, if he were to come out and say, you know, part of this is uh, because, you know, uh, I, I feel called by faith or, you know, we ca sure. feel called by uh, that kind of thing. Is that too far? Is that too much? No, I don't think that's too much because there's, there are all kinds of values and all kinds of history in this country of accepting people who are refugees and more power to people, Republicans or Democrats, who are willing to say this is a part of the judgment. But you still have to obey the laws, and you have to treat immigration laws and refugee laws as, as a matter of principle, but you have to obey them as well. And you know what bothers me, Tane, is it, so many people in Washington, it's as if no matter what they're talking about, they can be talking about sewage treatment plants, they'll give a speech, and then the last three words in that speech will always be, God bless America. Yeah. Now, I don't know, maybe there was a law passed at some point in the near, future, near past that said all word processors in Washington have to always <laughs> add, God bless America. I don't think so. I think I would have noticed that. Uh, <laughs> if they had changed the word processors, uh, yes, uh, I, thank you. Yeah. No, go ahead. That's great. I, so, but I, to this end, uh, 
there, there are polls out there that suggest that you know Americans at large are more likely to vote for uh, uh, you know a, a drag queen that uh, set, hands out condoms to children and uh, is an admitted like felon and drug dealer than an atheist for president. Uh, that might be slightly no. exaggerated. Um, but I mean, uh, that yep. an atheist is, I mean, whenever they do these lists of like that's the right. people that they, uh, like you would never elect, atheist is always the one that's like, that is the last thing that we would ever need in the presidency. And even, so to do more news on your friend Ben Carson mm -hmm. is that he said this morning uh, that, you know, a Muslim should never be president. Uh, right. Which yes, that's an appropriate a moment to groan. Uh, so, but put uh, that's an extreme. But sure. I, I am like, there there is this tension then of us having this separation of church and state, and people really, as a as a broad majority, really feeling like no, but I want my elected officials to have some amount of faith. Uh, they do. There was one elected uh, and upfront about it atheist in Congress in modern history. Uh, Barney Frank kind of came to that after the fact, but a guy named Pete Stark, who represented a district in California, was an avowed humanist, non-theist secularist. He was it, the only person. Every once in a while I'd come across somebody or somebody would ask me to come over and brief them on some, for some TV show, and then I would say, well, they might ask you, are you religious? And uh, the people who didn't want to admit that they probably weren't would always say, I'm a Unitarian, <laughs> but that's a religion, that's, you know. That, say, oh, but it's they, they, very close. No. Um, uh, <laughs> wow, there was um, not a lot of Unitarian laughs. No, there wasn't. <laughs> it's, it's that a, joke would have been done better in Minnesota. Yeah, it would have. So, okay, so, so uh, we already talked a little bit about Kim Davis. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, the Pope is coming to visit. Yes, he is. Uh, appearing before Congress yep. uh, and giving a big speech and uh, I assume that you will be outside with a sign that's like, no, go home, Pope, uh, or something. No, I, I will actually be in Boston. Because um, there's no Catholics in Boston. No, there aren't any. <laughs> well, no, but the, the Pope won't be going there either, so you're right. No, I used to live in South Boston, which is the most Catholic uh, area uh, you can imagine. And South Boston, the uh, home of Whitey Bulger, they made the new movie about him that came out the other day. But uh, I was, uh, I used to visit people in hospitals and, and I had a collar. I don't usually w wear it these days, but I used to have a collar and I am married and I used to be holding hands with my wife walking through the streets of South Boston on the way to the hospital to see paper. That, was, that wasn't good for me. <laughs> they thought that was, there was something shocking about that That's... because of course, normally people in collars uh, do not hold hands of women in public. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I'm not gonna I mean, be, I don't hold you, hands in public normally, cause, but I'm just a Midwesterner and I don't like touching other no, people. No, I understand um, that. But, the, but the, I, no, the Pope coming in, but good, bad, I mean, I, I, they, people are excited. No, they're very excited. This Pope does a lot of good things. He, he does care very much about the poor. There's no question about that. He's open to immigration. No question about that. But when you find that he talks about these issues, then you find that party that I wasn't going to mention, the Republicans, they don't want to hear that. They want to hear he's anti-abortion. Yeah. He's anti-marriage equality. They love that. They embrace it. They take information from it. They take theological learnings from it. When it comes to these other things, uh, Rick Santorum, he's also mm -hmm. running. I, I think he has above an asterisk. Uh, 
he doesn't believe the Pope knows anything about climate change because the, the Pope believes that there actually is climate change going on. Rick doesn't, so he doesn't believe him. And so, I don't know, there's an element to this where I don't know if we can uh, pick and choose what folks take away from their faith, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's a really challenging question that I, I feel like a lot, of, uh, a lot of people of faith struggle with in terms sure. of there's almost everyone's faith has something that it says that they very much disagree with. And so then is the message, no, you should just divorce. When it comes to how you act in public, you should divorce yourself from that? Or Well, if you're a politician, yes. But if you're a regular person or a voter, you no one knows why you vote for a candidate. If you like somebody's religious background or you like their shoe size, the color of their hair, you can go into the polls and vote on that basis. But I'd like to think people would vote on the basis of reason, on the basis of who has the best policy ideas, divorced from the question of who has the best theology. And I don't think that's, that is that difficult to do. John Kennedy running for president would have been, was the first Catholic president. People were worried, is he going to take orders from the pope? Not this pope, but another pope. And John Kennedy went, talked to Baptists in, in Houston in 1960, and he said, I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute. Can you imagine anybody saying that today? They would not get elected as dog catcher if they said that. Well, that was going to be my, uh, that's a great segue yeah. to, I wanted to ask, I mean, uh, uh, I was I was uh, very young in 1960, um, and uh, I but I think it's fair to say things have changed. We have a religious right that is much more politically active. Uh, there are folks. Uh, I, I believe Howard Feynman has made the argument that you know the rise of uh, evangelicals voting is probably one of the greatest sort of electoral movements in the last 30 years. Uh, so does that, I, I, I don't, I'm trying to phrase this tactfully, yeah. are you losing, mm. like, uh, or is it, uh, uh, or is your job no. harder? Uh, the, the job has always been difficult, but um, I think one of the things about voting, you know, the late Jerry Falwell, and he and I used to debate, I mean, literally hundreds of times I debated the late Jerry Falwell. Uh, we never agreed about much of anything. However, he originally, back in the 50s and early 60s, he would say to his own congregation, don't get involved in politics, just preach the gospel. Don't get involved in politics. Then someone came to him with an idea. We want to think of this new group, we're going to call it the moral majority, and we're looking for a religious right pastor who will run it. And Jerry said, I'm the guy. And then all of a sudden, all those speeches he made to his own congregation and to the public, don't get involved in politics, went out the window. He found the first thing that he could engage people with was racially discriminatory private schools. That was what started it all. And then five years later, he thought, you know, there's another issue, abortion. If I talk about this, I can get some of my Roman Catholic friends engaged in the moral majority also. So those two issues keep race discrimination in religious private schools, stop all abortions. That was what energized what is still 20% of the American people who characterize themselves as members of the religious right. That's a heck of a lot of people. That is a lot of people. So uh, 
how does that, I mean, and what's interesting to me is that those folks would also then say, and we live in an increasingly secular, heathenistic, yeah. uh, terrible yeah. place uh, where, you know, men go around holding hands, yeah. both wearing collars, and, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, and it's just, it's terrible. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, are both of those things true at the same time? <laughs> Well, they are both true, and one of the things about uh, American politics is if you go to a primary season and you have 20% of the people who are rigidly ideologically in support of one candidate, or in this uh, election cycle, uh, pretty much every candidate in that one party, you're going to have a tremendous amount of clout, particularly if people, and I, I may be post-millennial, I'm not sure, but... Millennials don't vote. I mean, 21% of people between 20 and 30 voted in the midterm elections. The reason I'm guardedly optimistic about the future is because millennials have very different views, more accepting on marriage equality, more accepting on reproductive justice issues, less denominationally focused, many very spiritual but without trying to impose that spiritual view on everybody in the community. That's great. That's the news I love. But if you don't go and vote and you have those views, it really doesn't matter. You're going to lose anyway. So just to, uh, just to uh, temper your optimism, because... Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I, you, I, you, we actually talked about this a little before the show, that yeah. there are currently... Uh, I don't know how this breaks down along millennial lines, but more folks who believe in ghosts than believe in evolution in the, yeah. in the United States. Uh, yeah. And I, I don't know why. I mean, ghosts had to evolve from somewhere. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I, this also, though, complicates to some degree, I feel, like, what we're talking about here, because that might be outside, to me, that might be outside of this question of church and state. You know, right. people could... People could believe in all the ghosts that they want, or the yeah. not evolution they want, as long as maybe they don't uh, make policy. I'm guessing exactly. it might be your your perspective. But I but is that a nonetheless is that possible? I guess it's probably the the answer is it's challenging to have both things. No, it is challenging. But the truth is that on evolution, for example, uh, millennials have about a seven percent higher acceptance for the evidence of evolution so what are we up to like 30 yeah 40 percent you're getting into the high 30s actually but uh oh, ghosts God. are another thing um <laughs> i people want to believe in ghosts because they but they want to believe in a lot of things that they can't see if you're not making policy based on what you can't see uh that's okay you start making policy about it, like uh, funding the Department of, of Ghostland Security, then, then I think you would be in big trouble. I would be opposed to that. But, you know, uh, evolution, the scientific community is 99-plus percent committed to the evidence for evolution. One of those debates with Jerry Falwell, one of the things he always used to say is, there are, there are intermediate fossils, we can't find them. In other words, there are gaps in the fossil record between this species and that species. So one day we were in what's called a green room, I didn't have one here, but a green room where you sit around and you chat before you go on television. And Jerry and I were sitting there, and the New York Times had just had a front page story that very morning about an intermediate fossil. I said, Jerry, 
Look at this. You're always complaining, not enough intermediate fossils. Look at this. is a huge discovery. It's going to be in every paper on every television show tomorrow. He picked up the paper. I handed it to him. He threw it down on the table. And he looked at him. He said, Barry, you know I don't read that stuff. Oh. <laughs> now, now what, I mean, really, this is the modern equivalent of saying, look, don't bother me with the facts. And it's fundamentally wrong. It's irrational and it's terrible for any public opinion leader to take a position like that. And, well, this is, this is how I feel like it might be getting more complicated or difficult because we do live, I don't think this is in contention, we live in a much more siloed, it's much easier to get your news or your opinions from somewhere that you agree with, whether that's something that is very religious or faith-based and very conservative or whatnot, or it's something that, you know, says anybody who believes in religion or faith is an idiot and, and uh, you know, we have everything figured out on our side. And I, I, know, I, I guess the, we're, the, how do we fix that or how do we move no. past that? Well, you know, it's a good question. That's a second good question. I mean, no, they're all good. No, they're all good questions. I thought you were going to, I was just feeding you that line. But uh, I speak to religious groups. I speak to atheist conventions. I always say to atheist conventions, look, I'm not hiding that I am a theist. I do believe there's a divine purpose to the universe. Here's the dish issue. We're not going to resolve the God question in the next 2,000 years because we've been kind of messing with that question for a long, long time. But we have about 25 years to save the First Amendment. Those 16 words, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I have built a career on 16 words. I always say to people going to law school, make sure if you want to focus, focus on something that's very simple and only has a few words. 16 words, and then Article 3 of the Constitution that says there can't be a religious test for public office. That's all you have to know. That's why I don't look any older than I do. That's, that's very convenient. Uh, we're going to open it up to audience mm. questions in the second half of the show uh, for our guests, but uh, I guess just sort of the, the last thing I would ask sure. you before we go uh, is... Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, legislative branch, about the presidential campaign. Uh, there's also, though, and you are a, a lawyer, and there's right. uh, court cases that have come through. I think one of the things we talked about before the show was a lot of people know the Hobby Lobby case in terms of a corporation can have a religious perspective or whatnot and, and use that. Uh, I, I don't even know exactly the question to ask other than, again, this seems really squishy because you imagine right like uh, uh, if there are people who run a company uh, and they really believe something strongly their argument is always uh, how, what am I supposed to do then uh, do something that really conflicts with me it's the what is the florist what is the conservative Baptist florist do once the the gay weddings come to town yeah. like they're very conflicted um, yeah they are they are but I'll tell you there are laws like in the case of many of these florist cases that you see in the newspaper, one is in Colorado. Colorado has a national, a state, I should say a statewide anti-discrimination statute. It covers everything including sexual orientation. If you decide to form yourself as a company and you decide to position yourself as a person who offers services like baking wedding cakes, you don't get the right in our system of government to just say, oh wait a minute, we meant we bake the cakes if we approve of the cakes, otherwise we're not going to do it. 
there was a huge fuss in Indiana, you may remember, when there was one of these religious freedom bills about to be passed. There was a pizza parlor owner who said, um, I wouldn't mind if a gay couple came into my pizzeria. I'd serve them two slices of pizza. But she said, I certainly wouldn't cater their wedding with my pizza. Now, nobody had asked her, actually, to do that, and I don't think anybody had thought about that. I, as a person who did perform uh, the marriage of my own daughter about a year ago, when I saw the bill for the food at her wedding, I, I wish she had thought of the pizza idea. <laughs> but, but now, so, so two slices, that's okay in her ethical viewpoint. 200 slices catered, that's not. What is the theological difference or the legal difference? And I'd say there isn't any in either category. Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, can we do a big round of applause for our guests? Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so, all right, what's going to happen now? So, uh, as I promised, the theater of public policy cast is going to take over the stage. So, do you, the question, just so everyone can hear it, is uh, do you foresee a reversal uh, of the Hobby Lobby case? Um, and we should probably, I know we talked a little bit about it, but just to really outline what that all would mean. Yeah, the Hobby Lobby case, Hobby Lobby's an arts and crafts store, which you may or may not be unfortunate enough to have in your neighborhood, but they sell things like do-it-yourself, uh, Pink Flamingo wind chimes and other religious icons. Wait, Pink Flamingo, but, like the movie, like the John no, 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 Waters no, 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 film? No, 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 they don't see that. Filthy wind chimes. It would be, wouldn't it? <laughs> no. What <they, laughs> No, but what they did was they said, we can exercise religion. And one of the ways we want to exercise is that we, we got four kinds of contraceptive, the most effective four kinds, and we think they cause abortions, and we're against abortion, so we're not going to allow any of our tens of thousands of women employees to have access through their health insurance plan to those forms of contraception. Now, could it be reversed? Well, the first challenge is we have to make sure that this doesn't get extended. This time, uh, by this time next year, we'll probably have a decision regarding whether those religious hospitals and religious colleges and universities can also, they, they're already exempt from having to cover any kind of contraceptive services that they don't want to, but they have to sign a 787-word document that says we cannot in good conscience cover these contraceptives. This was the accommodation given by the current administration. They say that's not accommodation enough, and a vast number of these have sued. They maintain that if they sign a statement that says they can't, cannot conscientiously do something, that too will violate their conscience, and therefore they don't have to do it. So they've refused to sign the paper. Some of these folks are old enough to remember conscientious objection during the Vietnam War. Right? You, right. This, Gentlemen you, there. You, so, uh, you don't remember that. But, but no, but you had to write a treatise. That you wanted to, get a, to be a conscientious objector. You had to be opposed to war in any form. For a while, you had to have a religious reason to do it. That changed because of changes in the Supreme Court. But you had to write a long document to prove that you actually believed you were in good conscience against war in any form. For these people, we're not talking about the church in the corner. We're talking about Notre Dame University, which gets a lot of money Does from the American Does it matter, though, it's the church on the corner or Notre Dame as far as the law goes? Uh, yes, it does. And uh, here's why I think it does, because Notre Dame gets a vast amount of 
taxpayer support in the form of grants and contracts from the government. They get them. They are heavily subsidized. Most churches, thank goodness, are not subsidized by the government. And I think it does make a difference. Notre Dame simply has to say, we won't do this. That means the Obama administration has to work out a deal. They've already worked it out with an insurance company to say, yeah, let's, let's make sure these women students and these women employees are able to get contraception. To me, I tell that to people and they go, I don't believe that's true because they can't believe that someone could honestly say they were committing a sin by signing a statement that said we will not be in any way a party to a sinful decision made by someone else and paid for by the federal government. That's absurd. So we have to make sure we don't lose one of those cases. Seven circuit courts of appeals have already decided, all of them against Notre Dame and other corporate entities like that, one, two, three days ago, came out on the other side. And they said, that is an exercise of religious freedom, and we, this creates what we in the law call a conflict in the circuits, the federal appeals circuits. And this is ripe now for the United States Supreme Court to weigh in, and I think they will make a decision to take one of those cases this very coming term, starting in October. And so... Uh uh, can it be reversed? Well, the, yeah, there's yeah. the question of can it be reversed, and then I guess the addendum would also be how do you see that case playing out? Well, I mean, the case is very important. I think it's the worst uh, Supreme Court decision, arguably, in modern constitutional history. Five people on the court. It only takes, you know, five people, but they win if it's a five-to-four decision. Uh, they have been known to change their mind very quickly. For a while, a majority of the United States Supreme Court back in the, in the four, uh, late 40s said you could compel a student to say uh, the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag containing the words under God. And there were people, Jehovah's Witnesses, who didn't believe that you should say this, whatever the words were, because you shouldn't pledge allegiance to a symbol. Within about two terms, maybe it was one term, this is why I don't go to the court very often because I don't remember these details. But within two years, they had reversed that decision. And all of a sudden, you could opt out of saying the Pledge of Allegiance. That's a big deal because in this country, we don't have a national idea about anything involving political correctness. We don't have, we don't have laws about what religion you can practice. We don't have an orthodoxy in ideas in America, and that's important. Okay, so I, I want to get to other questions. So other folks with hands. Yes, sir, right here, and then I'll come up there. Sure. Yeah. So the few straw men from the religious perspective, ghosts and evolution and things like that, do you worry that, uh, that you adhere to a certain different metaphysic, a secular metaphysic, and it's just stuck supposing of one orthodoxy versus another one as you go about trying to reason through these different issues? Mm -hmm. Finally got the word metaphysics in yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, and orthodoxy. Yeah. So uh, yeah. if folks uh, heard yeah. that, so is there, is there a, a tempt not a temptation, but do you potentially uh, fall into uh, having this alternative uh, metaphysics orthodoxy that you that you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, do, I do believe in secularism. That is to say, I do believe we should make governmental decisions based on the commonly shared values of the Constitution, not on anybody's particular religious outlook. 
Um, I don't think it's an orthodoxy to accept the evidence of science, whether that's about evolution or about climate change or about anything else. I think we do have a responsibility to look at the data, figure out what makes sense, what seems to be right, and act accordingly. So I don't think it's a, a metaphysical decision. I think it's a rational one based on evidence. Okay, there was a hand up there. Yeah, so it seems to me that a lot of the power of the evangelical lobby comes from the idea that religion and morality go hand in hand. Um, so basically my question is, um, how do you think people who are secular can effectively combat that message and get the message out that you can be moral and secular at the same time? Because I've heard a lot of people say, well, if you're not raised with God, if you don't consider God, then how can you possibly be moral? Uh, there are a lot of secular groups that are coming out of the ether, you might say, or the somewhere in the last 20 years, and that's a good thing. And I think one of the things that they points that they make on a regular basis is you don't have to be godly or a god believer in order to be a good person or a good American. And I think that more people who say that and the more people who are comfortable saying that, the better it's all going to be. Because remember... I'm not trying to convert people in a setting like this or on television. I'm just trying to save the Constitution. And so many uh, folks in the humanist community and atheist community are, even though we might disagree about matters of metaphysics, we don't disagree about saving the Constitution. And I think there's another powerful argument humanists have been making lately, and that is if you only do good because you fear the consequences of not doing good like spending eternity in hell, which is probably not good. If you... Probably, probably. Not good. what kind of a minute? To, like, what, what no, else are we doing? Uh, that's... So, uh, I, uh, I would, I, when, you yeah. sh when we're in hell together, uh, yeah. I just would yeah. be like, listen, uh, yeah. this is not the best thing. Uh, yeah. But if that's the motivator, arguably it's a stronger commitment to doing good for its own sake if you're not worried about going to hell. But I'm glad you mentioned hell because I was at a congressional hearing just a couple of years ago. It's in that book. And that is hell. Jack, <laughs> it, 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 this is so hellish. Uh, Louis Gohmert, you know, from Texas. Have you seen him on TV? Good. Um, Louis, Louis is a very, he's got very right-wing views on everything. But he in asking me to answer some questions for him after I testify on the subject of the state of religious freedom in America, which I believe I said was dizzyingly high, he said, Mr. Lynn, why do you not spend all of your time convincing people that the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ? So I thought I had perhaps misunderstood the question, but I didn't. And he kept going on and on and on about, and his colleagues on that panel, two of them I know were Jewish, one is Buddhist, we have a Buddhist representative in the state of Georgia. They, they just sat there with their eyes kind of rolling around in their head because I guess he does this all the time. But I finally said, you know, Congressman, you want to have breakfast and talk about heaven, my conception of it and yours, let's do it. But I don't think this is an appropriate place on the taxpayer's dime to have a theology class. <laughs> and that... That, that sure... I did not plan that. That no. was crazy. <laughs> You wow. know who did a ghost? A ghost, a ghost, ghost did that. that. I love that. Um, uh, I'm completely lost. Uh, yeah, there's a hand right here. I was wondering which candidate you prefer, which political candidate. 
Oh, I, you know, one of the things I don't do, I never talk publicly about who I support, and it, because as a charity, uh, we're not supposed to endorse candidates. We really are completely nonpartisan, and I can kid around about candidates because there's so many of them in both parties to kid around about, but uh, I, don't, I don't ever go there. Unfortunately, churches do. A lot of churches violate the tax laws of the country by uniformly and insistently and very publicly announcing who they will support or doing something else that makes it clear what party they're supposed to support. I always think it's better when they're kind of clever mm. about it, though. Like, uh, I had a friend who went to a Catholic church, and mm. they, they knew you're not, the thing you're not allowed to do yeah. that's very much crossing the line is say, go vote for this person. <laughs> so instead, the priest would just give a homily where they would say, voting is very important, and mm. there was like a picture of George Bush behind them. Yeah, or exactly. Uh, this is, yeah. it's very important that you do your duty, yeah. whatever choice you yeah. make, of course. Uh, that's a real, you know, that's a real incident. I mean, yeah, I remember, yeah. Yeah, I remember being on Fox News many times on that very question of having a picture of the candidate that they're talking about showing up right behind them. And the law, the tax law says you can't endorse or oppose any candidate for public office. It's very clear. The IRS calls it zero tolerance. But in the last six years, let's see, there's been zero enforcement of that provision of the tax code, which means people do these extraordinary things, like they, a pastor will stand up on a Sunday and say, Tuesday is election day. Um, if you would like to get a ride to the election polling places, come to the church, we'll use the church bus to take you there. Then when you get there in good faith, you say, I want to go on the bus, and they say, well, who are you going to vote for? And if you would happen to give the wrong answer, you would not be allowed on the bus to go and vote. Those are the extremes. That's the stuff we're really interested in and the picture behind it. We're not, if somebody says, look, vote pro-life, maybe that's okay. But when you start doing the thing you just described or the thing that I described or a lot of other over-the-top things that Michelle Bachman used to do, for example, when churches used to endorse her, that's way over the line. That ought to be enforced, and this administration has not prosecuted a single case, not even investigated a single case. So I, that was going to be my thought, because I, I understand your hesitancy <clears throat> uh, or, or discomfort in endorsing or uh, uh, knocking any particular candidate, but uh, we're sort of at the tail end of the Obama administration, yep. and so now it's not a matter of endorsing or not, but do you have sort of a report card or a, a review to give as far as your issues and things that you care yeah, about? I think the president's been good on some things. I think he's been terrible on two things. One is this enforcement of the tax laws. This is not the kind of stuff that people got uh, upset about. About two years ago, Fox News was worried about these social welfare organizations that are tax exempt, and they're not supposed to primarily be involved in partisan politics. These tax exempt groups that I'm talking about, all churches, most of the charities you probably give money to, they have a zero permission to do any endorsement or opposition to candidates. Zero. What is the enforcement supposed to look like? Does the IRS come in and like hit you over the head with a stack no. of paper? Or? No, they, they don't. Actually, what they do, because they used to enforce this, they would go, they would talk to you. Let's say you, you had said, this is a real story too, just to show you that I'm nonpartisan and all that, but uh, there was an African-American pastor, very prominent, former member of Congress, who announced at his church, because he was still pastor of a church, he, he announced that Al Gore was in the audience 
and that Al Gore was going to be, quote, the next president of the United States. And he gave him a jacket, basically like a sports jacket. Like a gore. Like wait, oh, not like yeah. you get when you win the open, the U.S. No. Open. Or no, 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 no. This is big. This is he was going to win the presidency, and we reported that, and and he was visited by the IRS, and all they did was say, if you agree to sign this document that says you understand what the law is, don't do it again. That's all it is. That you don't have to lose your tax exemption. Some did, a few uh, churches and other religious ministries, uh, Jerry Falwell, who, who I mentioned before, once used something called the Old Time Gospel Hour as a way to endorse candidates, and he did lose his tax exemption for one year for the Old Time Gospel Hour. Every time I'd bring that up on television, he would say, that Barry Lynn is a liar. He never, he, I never lost the tax exemption. So once, uh, to their credit, not that there's much there, but Fox, I brought a letter signed by Jerry Falwell to his donors admitting that he had lost his tax exemption for that year. And I brought it out. I said, this is the letter he says I'm lying about. And the host on, on Fox said, Falwell said, oh, no, he's not, that's not what it says. And she said, well, we can't just accept that. I mean, we, we should examine the letter. And so I read a little piece of the letter, and he said, oh, my lawyers made me do that. <laughs> the old lawyers made me you do it. You have such a weird relationship with Jerry Falwell. You yeah, kept I do. hanging out I after this? All the time. I, I know. I think I Did honestly... Did you guys do other kinds of pranks to each other? Yeah, right? we... we uh, no, but I think I do know. I literally know every right-wing crazed person in America. <laughs> no, really. I mean, because sometimes you do radio and television with them. I used to do, as you were kind enough to point out with Pat Buchanan, I, I did radio with him for about a year and a half every day for three hours. <laughs> yeah, she's over there going, like, why would he do that? And the re you know what, I, I'll tell you why I did that, because I expected him to win the presidency, and he told me he would appoint me the head of the National Endowment for the Arts for the one week before he abolished it. <laughs> That's and true. You would have a soft spot for improv comedy. Um, Maybe. Uh, was there one more hand right Maybe. there? Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. This will probably be our, our last one here. Make it good. I mean, go ahead. <laughs> who, who is one of your uh, favorite people to debate? Oh, that's good. Who favorite is one of your favorite people to debate? You know, uh, there's somebody that uh, I do think we have the most intelligent conversations, Jay Sekulow, who is the uh, kind of the chief legal beagle for um, Pat Robertson. And he's, uh, he has uh, two security guards in an airplane and four houses and all that. So he's doing better than I am. But, <laughs> but, but in terms of polite conversation where you really get at the issues, uh, I think Jay Sekulow is the best. I mean, I've debated all the... Uh, Ann Coulter, for example, not one of my favorite people. Um, and I occasionally debated her. But uh, I thought the weirdest thing she ever did was she... Um, I don't know if you read the works of Kathleen Parker. She's a syndicated columnist, yeah. but she's from the South. And uh, so one day I, I got up in the morning and looking at the computer, and people are sending me the, the latest Ann Coulter column, and I couldn't imagine why they were doing that. And uh, it turned out that she had done a column called Kathleen Parker, the Barry Lynn of the South. And the point was, that just like uh, she accused Kathleen 
Parker is not liking Southerners, but she, she accused me of not, not liking religious people, which is, of course, not, not true in spite of some of the things I, I may have said tonight. But <laughs> so, um, then, so Ann wrote a, a document that said, Lynn is pr- almost certainly not, uh, he's not a Christian. He's probably a Jew. And I will give a copy of my latest book to the first person who submits a copy of a uh, birth certificate that names his parents, or perhaps a bar mitzvah certification. Now that kind Did of. Did she tick- find your bar mitzvah certification? I was happy enough to help her with that. We have very fun people who work for me, and one of them had found a uh, a passport from Cameroon, the African nation of Cameroon, and it found. Is that it- where you got your bar mitzvah? That's no. That- <laughs> Destination, Destination. <laughs> So they took this, this passport, they superimposed my head uh, into a, a, three, a three-person photograph, photoshopped it, I think is what young people call it. And they, they fo- photoshopped my head. And then with it were two photoshopped heads of aliens, those traditional aliens with the big heads. And... Um, so I, of course, uh, sent it to Anne, and I said, do I get my free book now? <laughs> and, um, but it, 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 she, didn't, she did not Aww. reply. Aww. Yeah, I'd have sent her my book, God and Government, which is sitting out here if you want to spend we 15 bucks a, to get it. Such a good book. Uh, oh. So, I mean, people should buy all of them. Uh, very, that's helpful. So, um, uh, so I, I, I actually, uh, th- this is a good sort of closing question is in asking about uh, debating other folks. Is there, uh, you know, you're, you're a man of uh, reason and facts and, and changing as reason and facts a point. Is there something profound that you've changed your mind about in these 25 plus years of debating folks and talking to people? Is there something that you believed in? 1990, or uh, argued that you don't necessarily now? You have to go back further than that. You know, I mean, I, I, I used to be anti-choice. I mean, I, I thought abortion, oh my goodness, that's terrible. And, uh, but I, I saw the light on that. But in the last 25 years, this quarter century I've done this, honestly, I don't think anyone's persuaded me of anything, although... We were on Anderson Cooper one night with Ken Ham. He's the guy who runs Answers in Genesis. He's the guy who uh, has the ARC, wants to do the ARC encounter, getting subsidies from the state of Kentucky. He also is the guy who uh, built the Creation Museum, all with private funds. But then he wanted tax breaks for his new uh, water park themed on Noah's Ark. And, and uh, we didn't think that was a good idea. I'm sorry, a water park yeah. based on Noah's yeah. Ark. I'm willing to throw you under the bus for that. <laughs> that sounds like so much fun. Yeah. Are there going to be two elephants and two giraffes at the water park? Yeah. I'm really glad you asked that. Um, <laughs> really? Yes. So Anderson Cooper, we were talking, and I, I, I visited uh, Ken Ham's little uh, website earlier that day. And uh, I said, I said uh, you know, Anderson, what, what bothers me about this is not just the legal question, should this ministry of Ken Ham's be funded or subsidized by the state of Kentucky? But I said, look at the bad science. The, he wants the kid to go on the ark, life-size replica, and see not only humans, but dinosaurs. And Anderson goes, is that true? And uh, Ken Ham goes, well, of course, because, of course, that has to be true if the Earth is only 6,000 years old. And then I said, and unicorns will be on the ark. 
did you ever... You are a good Lutheran. I never read about unicorns in the Bible. Well, you did well, more reading than I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the answer is they're not there. But, but So Ken Ham kind of hems and haws about that. But, but, but then he ultimately says, yeah. And he did on, on his webpage that very afternoon. He was talking about promoting unicorns. And I said, Ken, honestly, there is no such thing as a unicorn. What? So, <laughs> Did well, he you, leave in tears? What? <laughs> Did you tell him you, that narwhals are real as a consolation yeah. <laughs> prize? Are you psychic by any chance? Because, you see, I walked out of that television studio and there was a, a, a young producer, woman producer for the Anderson Cooper show, who looked at me and said, Barry, what you just said has crushed the dreams of tens of thousands of young girls. <laughs> and a few very special young boys. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, big round of applause for 